I'm Carrie Miller, and each week we add a deep track, a book interview from the archives to the podcast. This week we're bringing you my conversation with acclaimed climate scientist and evangelical Catherine Hayhoe. Her latest book, published in October, is titled Saving Us and has compelling common sense arguments for why the climate crisis must be approached more urgently and what each of us can do about it. I think this book is an imperative read on climate change, and I hope you'll agree. Here's Catherine Hayhoe. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is a show about big books and bold ideas. The bold idea at the heart of climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe's new book is pretty straightforward. Climate change is here. We can see it all around us. All is not lost. Indeed, Hayhoe, who has certainly endured her share of dismissives, denialists, cynics, and catastrophists, is here with specific steps to launch conversations, to ignite action, and to keep hope alive. She writes in the preface, The biggest challenge we face isn't science denial. It's a combination of tribalism, complacency, and fear. So we're going to take each of those barriers apart this morning and then give you a plan of action for making collective change. Catherine Hayhoe is chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy and a professor of public policy and public law at Texas Tech University. She spends a significant amount of time talking with evangelicals about climate change, and her new book is titled Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. She joins us from Texas Catherine, are first names all right, or should I call you the high priestess of the climate cult? <laughs> I do accept calling. either. <laughs> yes, <laughs> either is just the fine. name calling just blew my mind, Catherine. Uh, what, what do you do with that? I mean, in some ways, it tells me that these people that are coming up with these, you know, nasty names for you are aware of your growing influence and concerned that you're getting through. How do you see it? Yes, it almost is sort of an inverse compliment because if someone's going to take the time to look you up and specifically attack you, and so far this morning, I think I've had about maybe 12 just this morning alone. Um, you have? It means that Oh. Yeah, yes, I actually have. That's not that it, it could be more, but I'm a, I'm a scientist, so I like to be conservative with the numbers. Um, and that sort of signals that there's something you're doing that's making them afraid that they see as a threat. And if they're opposed to climate action, if they are doing their best to muddy the waters and confuse people and claim that it's a hoax, and they are afraid enough of you to start to attack you, that means that you might be making a difference. I mean, you've also gotten handmaiden of the Antichrist. What else comes your way? And I guess which of these denialists or dismissives do you think there might be a persuadable person behind this? Or is the name calling just, you know, you're dead to me and I'm moving on to the people that can really be reached? The name calling is a clue that they are not interested in actually having a constructive conversation. I'm, you know, there's a lot of jokes on my last name and there's a lot of calling me an idiot or uninformed or stupid or greedy or venal or in the pay of big green or the range is out there, anything that they can think of. And frankly, it's not even that creative. It's a little bit disappointing. That's why I do prize the, the handmaiden of the antichrist type epithets because they're <laughs> at least a little bit more, you know, ingenuity than that than the whore of Babylon. I mean, that one comes straight out of the Bible. So <laughs> oh Unbelievable. yes. And when people do that, they're not trying to have a conversation with you. They're trying to shut you up. But the good news is that when we look at the data, this is absolutely crazy. You'll be shocked. And I think most people listening will probably be surprised to know that people who are hardcore dismissive, these people who are the loudest voices on social media or in the comment section of the newspaper, they are 7% of the population. They are the seven mm. percenters. Mm. They are loud and they certainly get amplified in the echo chamber of social media. But 93% of us, we can have constructive conversations that don't begin by disagreeing and they certainly don't begin by insulting each other and they don't begin by judging each other either. I want to talk about, yeah, that territory between denial, 
we all know what those people sound like, and dismissive. And I guess I wonder if you've got dismissives that are outside of the hardcore 7% you just talked about, who are waiting for some kind of message that maybe breaks through that dismissiveness? Or do you have to let those people go too? Well, how I think of it is something called the Six Americas of Global Warming that was developed by Yale University's Climate Communication Center. And what they do is they divide people up into six different groups. And it really makes sense when you start to think about who's in the groups. At one end, you have people who are alarmed. And then right next Mm -hmm. to them, you have people who are concerned. And they make up well over 50% of people in the U.S. But here's the interesting thing. Most people who are alarmed or concerned are not activated. They might be afraid, they might be panicked, and I talk to people in Texas, and many people here are alarmed, but they don't know what to do about it. So you know what? We never talk about it. Only 14% of people, according to the most recent poll, ever talk about climate change. And so we just quietly stew in our anxiety, which is not healthy at all, and we do nothing because we don't know what to do. The next biggest group is cautious. And cautious Uh people, they often lead with their doubts. And frankly, who wouldn't have doubts these days with everything that you can pick up on the internet and social media? How do we know it isn't a volcano? How do we know it isn't a natural cycle? Are are there any solutions to climate change that don't involve destroying the economy and everybody going back to the Stone Age? These are questions that anybody would have if they spent any time on media that's, you know, on the right-hand side of the political spectrum. And so when cautious people lead with these questions, all too often they just get a denial label slapped on their forehead. And that just shuts down the conversation instead of saying, those are great questions. They're such good questions that many people have spent a lot of time looking into them. This is how we know it's not volcanoes. We checked. This is how we know it's not natural cycles. We looked at that. This is how we know that moving our electricity grid in the U.S. over to clean energy would actually save us money, including your electricity bill. There's good answers to it. So that's most of the people in the U.S. That is 75% of us right there in that chunk. And then the remaining 25%, we have a small group who are disengaged. They've been living under a rock the last 20 years. I don't know where that rock is, but (laughs) I think you kind of have to be there to not not know about climate change. (laughs) Then there's 12% who are doubtful. And those are the ones that the conversations are most difficult with, but they can make progress if we can genuinely connect over shared values. And in the book, I have some really fun examples of ways that that has happened with people who are doubtful. But then at the end, you have the seven percenters. And honestly, my definition of a seven percenter is if an angel from God with brand new tablets of stone saying global warming is real and high letters of flame appear before them, that would not change their minds. So who do I think I am? I want to talk about John Cook and his father because he lived in one of these groups outside of the hardcore 7% deniers. I was surprised, you tell the story about John and his dad in the book, I was surprised what actually reached his father's, I guess, dismissiveness and skepticism. So will you talk about this? I will. That is one of my favorite stories. So John's dad was doubtful. And doubtful means that he was pretty hardcore. I mean, every time John went home for dinner, his dad would be like, well, John, there's more polar bears now than there ever have been. So how can you say that they're endangered? (laughs) Right? But 99.9% of our denial has nothing to do with the science. It has nothing to do with religion. Believe me, I know that most of the excuses we use are either science or religiousy, with a few economic excuses thrown in. But 99.9% of our aversion is solution aversion. We don't think we can fix it. We understand we're part of the problem, but we don't know what could be done to fix it that's consistent with our values. So our subconscious kicks in as a defense mechanism because we don't want to be a bad person. We don't want to say, sure, this is real and it disproportionately affects the poorest and most marginalized, most vulnerable people on the planet, but I don't want to fix it. That would make me a bad person. So we rationalize. We go out and we engage in something called motivated reasoning to simply find the reasons why we're, we're right. We, we, we get our opinion first, as Jonathan Haidt says in, the, in his really interesting book, The Righteous Mind. We form our opinion first, and then we go out looking for information to prove that we're right. So that's what John's dad had done. But his identity was that of a fiscal conservative. He's shrewd with his money. He likes to save money. He likes to be independent. 
So when a rebate program came up for solar panels in his area, John, you know, mentioned this to his dad and his dad crunched the numbers and he said, sure, this actually makes sense. So he got panels. He started sending John his bill every month to boast about how much money he had saved. (laughs) These solar panels reinforced his pre-existing identity. It made him even more shrewd, even more savvy, even more fiscally conservative and more independent than he was before. And it made him part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And so John recounts how about a year or two later in the course of conversation, his dad said, oh, yes, global warming. I've always thought that was real. (laughs) And John said he just about fell off his chair. He's like, he didn't just change his mind. He forgot that he had ever denied it. And then his dad's like, and I had to do my latest, my latest power bill for my, (laughs) with my solar panels. (laughs) I mean, John's a climate scientist. We should, we should add that too. I mean, he really knew the science and yet his own dad couldn't be persuaded by it. It's even worse than that. John went back to university and got a PhD in cognitive psychology (laughs) to understand denial that he is the leading global expert. He has this amazing YouTube video series called Cranky Uncle, and he talks about COVID denial and vaccine denial and climate denial, and that wasn't what convinced his dad. I think this leads us to talking about fear and complacency and efficacy. This was so interesting to me how you have linked the research about cognitive, uh, the cognitive research on efficacy, this, this sense of agency that we can do something about it and climate change. Come back to why the two are so inextricably linked and why we better understand this better to persuade some of the skeptics and the dismissives out there. Well, this goes right back to the groups we were talking about, the fact that 75% of us are alarmed, concerned, or cautious about climate change. 75%. Yet somehow we're not, action is happening, but it's not happening at the scale or the speed that it needs to, to avoid truly serious and even dangerous consequences, not for the planet, which will still orbit the sun long after we're gone, but for us and for every living thing that shares this planet with us. So if 75% of us are worried and nothing's happening, the question, that begs the massive question, why not? And that has Mm -hmm. nothing to do, in my opinion, with persuading the the 25%. It has everything to do with the fact that we don't think we can make a difference. And that's that that social science word that you just mentioned, efficacy. Efficacy is the idea that if I do something, Will it matter? Will it make a difference? If we do something, will it matter? And when it comes to climate change, we're told there's this existential threat to civilization as we know it, which is true. And then we're told to change our light bulb and eat less meat. And we we instinctively know that that is not going to fix an existential threat. So although I have certainly changed my light bulbs and eat less meat and have a plug-in car and solar panels and reduce my food waste and change my travel habits... That is not what is going to fix climate change. The single most important thing that I am doing, that you are doing, that every single one of us can do is exactly what we're not doing. We are not talking about why it matters and what we can do to fix it because that is what builds efficacy. And this this is going to sound kind of crazy, but when you look at how the world has changed before in the past, when you look at huge monumental issues like slavery and civil rights and women having the vote... It didn't change because a prime minister or a CEO or a big, famous, rich, wealthy, influential person decided it had to. It began, that change began, the first domino in that long chain was knocked over when people, ordinary people, decided to use their voices to talk about why it mattered, what we can do to fix it, to join together with others, to talk to people where they worked, in their neighborhood, at whatever table they're sitting at, so to speak, which could be the kitchen table, but it could be the boardroom table. It could be the school table. It could be your desk at work. Wherever you are using your voice to talk about why it matters, what other schools are doing or other businesses are doing or other cities are doing or our city is doing or our state is doing and getting that ball rolling and talking, of course, about what you're doing yourself. I talk about that too. But building that sense of efficacy because ultimately that's what's holding us back and that's what will take us forward. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a show about big books and bold ideas, and Catherine Hayhoe is here. She's chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy. She's a professor of public policy and public law at Texas Tech. 
And her new book is out titled Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. Now, I want you to know, as you listen to our conversation go on, this is a discussion about science, right, and some very interesting cognitive science and some interesting environmental science. There is a lot of practical information and detail here, too. How do we ignite these conversations that Catherine is talking about? What to do yourself that may not change the entire scope of climate change, but that does make a difference. So we're going to cover all of that, and I hope you'll keep listening. I want, uh, I want you to listen to something, Catherine, here uh, from anthropologist Gretchen Bakke. She was on NPR right about the time that I was reading your book. Again, she's an anthropologist, but she is out with a new book about the electrical grid and how climate policy intersects with this tribalism that I want to get into a little further. So here's Gretchen. There's something very, very sure feeling about that, that maps on in some sort of strange way to a set of um, uh, political persuasions. So it's not all Republicans. Many Republicans are for um, especially solar power because it allows for a kind of independence um, and self-sufficiency, right? It's not divided merely on party lines. But in this moment, it was not surprising um, that there was this sort of point to the, you know, here's the danger. It's the thing we can't control, right? The thing yeah. we can't control is the danger. So it's interesting. It's not necessarily the fundamentals. It's how people feel about it. Exactly. I'm an anthropologist, right? So I'm not an electrical engineer writing about the electric power grid. And it aligned as it was designed and as we've changed it over the past 120 years, it aligns absolutely to the particularity of American values, business values, and also cultural values over time. We're always changing this infrastructure. We're always intervening in it. And now we're saying... Let's make power renewably. Oh, dear. Right? Like, this is a huge technological problem, but that problem comes from our value system. Catherine, what do you hear in that anthropologist's view of this? Well, first of all, I think immediately back to John's dad. Having his solar panels made him more independent as well as more fiscally responsible. And so that theme of independence is really a strong one that I think can appeal across the spectrum, but especially on the right-hand side of the spectrum. And it reminded me of an experiment that we did just a few months ago. So I didn't write about it in the book because it was done after the book was finished. We made four short videos talking about climate solutions from the perspective of a Republican congressman, former Republican congressman, Bob Inglis, a retired oh, yeah. army general... Show. Oh, good, good. Yes. A retired army general called Ron Keyes, um, the head of a libertarian think tank, um, the, the Niskanen Institute, and then me speaking not just as a scientist, but as a Christian. So they aired these super videos on social media in three different purple districts in the U.S., and they didn't track who listened to them. They just aired them on social media through targeted advertising, and then they tracked people's opinions on climate change in those congressional districts. And they found a significant increase in levels of climate change awareness, concern, and willingness wow. to engage in solutions with Republicans. Wow. And so that tells you that, and, and you knew this, that trusted messengers can break through some of this fear and complacency. What else does it tell you? It confirmed that it can work in the real world because obviously I had experienced this myself in individual conversations and even with talks I'd given and tracking people's opinions. But it's amazing to see that you can actually put videos out on social media, sort of casting them over the transom, so to speak, not knowing where they're going to land. And they truly have an impact. It also, um, listening to her comment on the grid, also made me think of Texas. Texas mm -hmm. has its own mm -hmm grit. It is cut off from the rest of the country. And it likes it that way. And then, of course, when we can't get power, which we need during major blackouts, then everybody complains. So Texas's power grid has been both a blessing and a curse. It has been a blessing because it has enabled entrepreneurs to build out wind and solar to an extent that is, at least for, for wind, unmatched across the rest of the United States. The Texas grid, if you build a wind farm, it will build out to you to get your power. And so that makes it more affordable for people to invest in wind, knowing that they don't have to build into the grid in Dallas if they build a wind farm out in West Texas. So that's been a tremendous 
boost to clean energy in the United States, ironically. But at the same time, because it's a bit of a wild west for the grid, wind energy producers and natural gas producers and nuclear power plants, none of them were required to spend the little bit of extra money that it would take to winterize their equipment. And so along comes the massive ice storm that we had this past February, and we had another one 10 years before that, and natural gas pipelines freeze, nuclear power shuts down, and some wind froze, but wind overall actually overproduced during the blackout. It was nuclear and natural gas that were primarily responsible for the shutdowns. So that is one of the Achilles heels of having that independent grid, and she is perfectly right. Why did that happen? It had everything to do with human decisions rather than technology. I'm glad you brought up Texas because this is, I didn't know that about the upside of this independence that it allows people to put in renewable energy without going through a bunch of red tape and regulation. But I also want to talk about political cynicism. And I think we saw that on display with Governor Greg Abbott. I mean, there are cynics in our political class when it comes to climate change, and let's admit it, many of them have an R next to their names. And here's Texas Governor Abbott, who responds to that electrical grid malfunction in February by going on conservative cable and criticizing renewable energy sources. When you know he knows that that is important to the future of Texas, he's playing to a certain political echelon that is, I think that is going to be damaging to the greater common good. What do you do about that? What do you do with that? Well, that's exactly what happened. As the power blackout swept across Texas, Governor Abbott went on, I believe it was Fox News, you can correct me if I'm wrong, and claimed falsely that wind energy was primarily responsible for the blackout. And you're right, that claim and that continued denigration of clean energy is actually very harmful for Texas's economy long term and for its job market long term. You know, blaming a problem on the Model T Ford when you want to keep on using horses and buggies, you're just trying to hold back the tide, so to speak. We have new clean energy. We need energy. Energy, especially electricity, is very highly correlated with human welfare. But just as we no longer use horses and buggies or telegrams or party line telephones, in the same way, it is time to move forward into the future where we wean ourselves off the old and dirty and frankly, outdated sources of getting energy that we've used since the Industrial Revolution, since the 17 and 1800s, and transition to new sources of energy that, guess what? Texas could supply in spades. So why is the governor not talking about this? I don't know him personally. I have never had a private conversation with him. But based on what I've seen of many politicians, not just him in general, it's because his immediate base and his immediate supporters have everything to gain from keeping us using fossil fuels as long as possible, and preventing the change that will eventually arrive whether you like it or not. The only question is, will it be in time to save us from climate change? I was thinking as you were describing Abbott's position on this, that this is coming whether he gets in line or not. I guess I wonder why these voices of resistance to the the facts and the inevitability don't worry about how they're going to be seen by history. I don't know. (laughs) I think about those things. Maybe they don't, you know, do you want to be the herald of the historic herald of, you know, just idiocy when the changes all around us? What were you going to say? Well, I'm just agreeing with you. I'm sort of snorting in agreement. And and it reminds me of what I first thought, you know, when, when Trump first got in and people were saying, well, what would you say to Trump? Because at that point, his views on climate change were all over the map, literally from one yeah. end of the spectrum right. to the other. And they said, well, what would you say to Trump? And I said, well, here's what I would say to him at that time, back in the day, I would say, do you want to be known? You're, do you want your legacy to be? Do you want how people remember you both, you know, in your old age as well as after you're gone, as the hero who saved the world or as Nero who fiddled as Rome burned. And I'm very sorry to say that with with some notable exceptions, the majority of the Republican Party has decided that they would rather be Nero. 
You're listening to a discussion with climate scientist and author Catherine Hayhoe. She's chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy, and her new book is titled Saving Us. I'm Carrie Miller. I want to ask you about climate public finance, because this is something that uh, President Biden is interested in. He's recently announced a contribution, if if Congress passes it, of $11.4 billion that he wants to commit to greener economies and climate change infrastructure to other countries. And I think the way uh, the Washington Post talks about this is interesting. The new pledge aims to ease the distrust and anger among many small developing nations who have done little to cause global warming, but often have been hardest hit by its impacts. That rift has eroded the sense of unity that will be necessary at high-profile UN climate talks in Scotland this fall. Where does the United States taking a leading role on that, maybe China's doing the same, I don't know, when it comes to sharing financing for this, how important do you think that is for the collective and the the substantial kind of change that needs to be taken worldwide? I think it's very important because the 3.5 billion poorest people in the world are responsible for 10% of the heat-trapping gas emissions that are causing this problem. 10%. Yet they are the ones who are disproportionately impacted. So since the 1960s, climate change has already increased the economic gap between the richest and poorest countries in the world. And we've got the US and Canada right up there, you know, near the top of the richest countries. Climate change has increased the gap between the richest and poorest by as much as 25%. That is huge. And so basically, our emissions, our heat trapping gas emissions, our dependence on and overuse of fossil fuels has demonstrably and quantitatively harmed other countries. And you can put dollar signs on what it has done. We know that climate change has contributed to at least $5 billion worth of crop losses on average every year since the 1980s. Much of that in the poorest countries in the world where people live below a dollar or two a day. So in Paris, the rich countries were there to talk about how much carbon they had to reduce and whether they could do it fast enough to meet these targets. That's why the rich countries were there. And they argued a lot over, you know, how much does it have to be and when do we have to do it by? Well, in the meantime, the majority of the world's countries, the lower income countries were there to just say, we are suffering. We have contributed almost nothing to this problem. Help us. You need to help us because we are trying. We are trying to just give people food. We are trying to provide basic health care. We're trying to provide running water. We are trying to provide, you know, basic education that saves lives. And yet climate change is a threat multiplier, as the military calls it. It is making every single one of these issues worse. And we cannot survive if we do not fix climate change. That's why we had the Paris Agreement of limiting emissions to so so that warming would stay below two degrees one and a half if we can. But then on the other hand, there was the Green Climate Fund that rich countries promised to contribute to, to help poor countries adapt and also at the same time reduce their carbon emissions too. It is not a free lunch. They do both. Well, under the Obama administration, my understanding is that they only contributed half of what they said they would. So this has been a long time coming. President Biden has announced targets of a 50 to 52% reduction of greenhouse gas pollution from 2005 levels by 2030. I don't want to ask you if that's enough, but I want to ask you if we are on a path that will make a significant enough difference within nine or 10 years. Well, I'm Canadian and we had a Canadian federal election just very recently. And I graded our party's plans. We have multiple parties in Canada, not just two. Mm-hmm. And so if, if I had to grade the U.S. administration's plan, I would give them an A for ambition. I would not give wow. them an A+, plus, okay. but I would give them an A for ambition. But my second grade was for feasibility. And mm-hmm. I can't give them an A for feasibility yet because you can't sign, you know, increasing numbers of oil and gas leases and then say you're going to cut emissions 50% by 2030. You can't assume that everybody's going to fall in line with what you're doing and, and all these sectors are going to change through policy alone without 
something that touches on the individual consumer, like a price on carbon, which is what we have in Canada. So I cannot give them nay on feasibility. Um, and, And here's the problem. Which one matters more? What you promise or what you actually accomplish? Since you've brought up a carbon tax, I want to ask you about this, because when you read scientists, environmental scientists like yourself, when you when you read their projections and their solutions, there is often no equivocation about the necessity of a carbon tax. Politically, in this country, that is going to be, it seems like in the near term, going to be very difficult. Can the work we need to do, the targets we need to hit, the collective efficacy we need to embrace, can any of that really make enough of a difference without a carbon tax? Or are we inevitably headed for that? Well, I am not a policy expert, but as a scientist, I know enough to respect people who are. And so when Mm -hmm. I talk to, um, when I listen to economists around the world, just about every economist, including the two who won the Nobel Prize two years ago for their work on carbon pricing, they believe that the most effective first step to engaging climate solutions within a, a relatively free market and I say relatively because fossil fuel subsidies are astronomical. They top the U.S. defense budget per year in the U.S. alone. But in a relatively free market, economists agree that a price on carbon sends the signal that we need. It puts a, a price on something that we are paying for. Make no mistake, we are paying for that. We are paying for it through our rising insurance costs, through the cost of FEMA to, to address disasters, through the changes in building materials when disaster strikes, through you know losing, losing things dear to us, including our own homes for many people. So we are already paying for it, but we're not doing so in a way that directly connects it with solutions. And so that's what a carbon price does. It says, if you want to drive a giant gas guzzler, you can, but you will pay for the damage that is causing to everybody else around you. And that just sort of makes sense, right? So we need policies. We need infrastructure. Infrastructure is a huge part of both mitigation and adaptation, uh, of, of building resilience to the impacts we can't avoid and building out the infrastructure that we need so people don't have to sit in a car for two hours there and back every day on their way to work. They can just take a quick rapid train. We don't have a lot of the resources that Europe has, and we need those resources to improve the quality of our life, the quality of our air, and to cut down on our heat trap and gas emissions. So so we're moving in the right direction, but we really need to be treating this like a crisis. I mean, th- these are not the actions of addressing a crisis. These are the actions that I would have liked to see back in the 1980s or maybe the 1990s. And if we'd been doing this back then, I would feel actually really good about things. But we're not. It's 2021. The weather dice are loaded against us. The damages are increasing and the window of time to avoid dangerous impacts is closing fast. And we need to tackle it as if we mean it. I want to talk about talking about climate in places where there's resistance. You have a lot of experience with this in evangelical faith communities. I'm curious about what it was like when you first started going into churches and perhaps onto, you know, conservative college campuses to talk about the consequences of climate change. At the very beginning, what was it like? Well, it was really interesting because I didn't even start talking to groups that weren't just asking me to come and update them and they were already worried. I didn't start doing that until I moved to Texas. And when I moved to Texas, I was the first climate scientist within probably 200 miles of where I live. And as far as I know, I still am the only one. Within a couple of months, I got my first invitation to speak to a women's group. And they they weren't dismissive. They were curious, cautious, maybe doubtful. But they had questions and they figured out, hey, we've got this person in town now. Let's hear what she has to say. So I, I did my very best to organize the science as clearly as I could. And I went and I talked to the group and I listened very carefully to the questions they asked me. And I still do that today because I figure the questions are things that they wanted me to say or they wanted to hear from me, but they didn't. So that first talk, I still remember, I got a lot of questions on, but what about? Because that's what they were hearing, you know, in the news or um, from people they trusted. But what about volcanoes? What about natural cycles? What about? So I got an invitation a few weeks later from a woman who was at that first meeting to speak to her book group. 
So I changed my presentation, addressed the whatabouts, listened very carefully to the questions I got, um, got an invitation a few weeks later to speak at a senior citizen's home. And each time I kept listening. And so we progressed from what about questions of the science to questions about, well, why should I care? I mean, you're a climate scientist, but I live here in Texas. So then I started to talk about how it's affecting us in Texas. It's not about Antarctica or the polar bears, although they are certainly affected too, but what is happening where we live? Droughts are getting longer and stronger and heavy rainfall is more frequent and it's getting really hot in the summer. And hey, we're even getting crazy winter storms. This is global weirding. But Mm -hmm. then I started to think, well, hang on, but why do I care? I care because I live in Texas. I care because I'm a mom. I care because, you know, I want clean air to breathe and water to drink and food to eat. But most fundamentally, I care because I'm a Christian. In fact, the reason I became a climate scientist is because I'm a Christian, not despite it. I was almost done my undergraduate degree in astrophysics when I you know, looking back serendipitously and needed an extra class to finish my degree. And there was this brand new class in climate science over in the geography department. I thought, well, that looks interesting. Why not take it? And that's, that's where I learned, um, yeah, that, that climate change is not only an environmental issue, but it's also a human issue. It affects our health. It affects the economy. It affects national security. And it disproportionately affects the poorest and most marginalized people, like we talked about before, the very people we as Christians are called to love and care for. And so I thought, well, this is so urgent, because I also learned that in the class. Surely we have to fix it soon. I'll do everything I can to help, and then I'll go back to astrophysics. So so that's why I became a climate scientist. So going back to my my trail of, of talks, finally, after about a year or two, I got my first invitation to speak at a church. And It wasn't First Baptist. In fact, I never have been invited to speak at First Baptist. It was Second Baptist. And it wasn't Sunday morning. It was Wednesday night, you know, so I wasn't going to defile the sanctuary or anything just in case. (laughs) Um, But I thought to myself, well, maybe this is the time as uncomfortable and as it feels to share with people why I care because they're Christians too, and I'm not a Baptist, but you know, I am a Protestant, and so we believe most of the same things. So that right. was the first time I started, after the science and after the impacts, I started to sort of share some of the Bible verses that guided my own concern. And I didn't know what I expected. I sort of expected people to just sort of maybe roll their eyes or, or walk out, but instead, people sort of leaned forward, and I could see their faces opening up even more as something that was so important to them was directly connected to this issue. And so that's where I started to realize the power of engaging at that level. And since then, I've spoken at many chapel services with many very nervous people wondering what they were doing bringing this climate scientist in. But I start, I start with almost a statement of faith, like this is what I believe, and this is what you believe too. And because we both believe this about this amazing planet, about the incredible nature that we're surrounded with, about how we are to be recognized by our love for our fellow human beings, that is literally Jesus's words, because this is what we all believe, and we're all nodding along with this, right? That's why we care about climate change. And then I connect Mm -hmm. the dots and show how if we take the Bible seriously, we're the perfect person to care. And by the way, as recommended in your book, you can follow that kind of strategy, whether you're speaking to a group that's kind of a captive audience or you're in conversation with somebody who is either genuinely confused about the science and, you know, asking open-minded questions or somebody who's acting out of that kind of fear and complacency that we talked Mm -hmm. about at the beginning of the conversation, right? Completely. And so in the book, I tried to provide as many examples as I could about how you can start conversations over all kinds of things, like the fact that you are a diver or the fact that you like to knit with your grandma or you love to cook with your family or you play tennis or you run and and more stories keep coming in. So one man actually just reviewed my book for a science website and he said, I, you know, I've worked in climate for years and I never realized that one of the most important things to me is deep sea fishing. And I'm part of this deep sea fishing community, and I have never talked to them about how climate change is affecting the fish. And we can see it happening with our own eyes. And then someone Mm -hmm. just asked me today, he said, I'm I'm a musician. How would I talk about it? I was like, oh, I can't believe I didn't mention that. I'm going to have to write a sequel because, you know, Mm -hmm. artists, 
whether musicians or, or, or visual artists, they have this way of just immediately just reaching out and grabbing our heart, our emotion. They almost bypass the brain right to what's most important to us. And they are just absolutely brilliant at evoking the, the emotional connection to what we love, what we're passionate about, what we're worried about, what we care about. Whoever someone is, they already have something they care about. We just have to connect the dots. So, Catherine, I was talking with a friend who had run into denialism and resistance about the coronavirus vaccine. Family members, you know, people she loves and who love her, who are relying on religious teachings and, Mm. you know, distorted science to resist getting the vaccine. And, you know, I was kind of casting around for, okay, what, what would be helpful? And I thought of your book. And I thought yes. of the way that you, yes, you're approaching these discussions could be used in a, you know, in a vaccine resistant kind of conversation as well. What, what do you think of that? I completely agree with you. I mean, the book at the surface level is about climate change, but climate change along with COVID is one of the most politicized issues in the whole U.S. And if we can get together on an issue like that, what else could we fix? And so really underneath, it's about coming together rather than continuing to drive each other apart. It's about identifying common ground rather than constantly focusing as as so much media does and so much, especially on social media, focuses on what divides us, what we disagree on. And it's really about when it comes down to it, there is far more than that unites us than divides us. Being humans living on this planet who care about our children, we care about the place we live. We want a safe world. We want a better world. We all want these things. And today, if we don't fix climate change, and if we don't just get that dang vaccine, we are not going to have that world. You have a chapter th- that I thought was enlightening and you know kind of amusing about what you do for climate change, in your own personal life, beyond all the science that you're discussing. You talk about your husband getting, was it solar panels for the house Mm -hmm. as a Christmas gift? Tell me some of the things that you do in your own life that may be a drop in the bucket, I guess, you know, when it comes to the meaning of collective action on climate, but that for you makes a difference. Every year, I adopt two new climate habits. I don't do it because I think that my personal greenhouse gas emissions will fix the problem. They won't. Even if all of us who were alarmed and concerned about climate change did everything we could overnight, that wouldn't even fix a quarter of the problem. So why do I do it? I do it, first of all, because it's the right thing to do. We can't just talk the talk. We have to walk the walk, too. I was talking with my son about that on the way to school, and he's like, Well, obviously, if you don't, you're a hypocrite, and nobody likes a hypocrite. I do it, though, because it gives me a sense of efficacy. I'm doing something, and I can see the difference. My power bill went down when we got our solar panels. I loved not going to the gas station during COVID because I had a plug-in car. We eat better because to reduce food waste, I go grocery shopping twice a week now instead of once every two weeks, and we eat a lot more vegetables, a lot more fish, a lot less beef and pork. So I do these things, but I talk about them because the number one thing that every single one of us can do that truly is the first step to changing the world is talking about why this matters to us personally because of who we are and what is being done to fix it. And we can absolutely talk about what we're doing ourselves. It's called social contagion, and it's actually a good type of contagion. It turns out that the number one predictor of whether someone has solar panels, for example, is if someone within about a mile of their house has them. And when I post on social media about how, you know, I'm using shampoo bars now, so I get rid of plastic in the bathroom, or I'm reducing my food waste, and here's how I do it. Everybody else is like, oh, no, that's interesting. I could try that too. So we're being contagious, but we need to be contagious at a larger scale too. We need to be having these conversations about what our school can do, or our place of work can do, or our church can do. Having these conversations at every table that we're at, so to speak, that is the biggest way that every single one of us can make a difference. Because as we talked about before, 
the world has changed in incredibly profound ways before at the scale of what's needed to fix the climate crisis. And when the world changed, it was when ordinary people used their voices to say the world can and must be different. And here's how we could get started. Okay. So speaking of tables, one of the places that I have to say I I really despair of change is animal agriculture. I think it's going to be very difficult to wean not just this country off of the way we raise and eat animals, but other countries that, you know, are coming into the middle class. That is a more, I guess, nutritious diet, or at least it's perceived that way. What do I do with that? Is there, is there some hope for my despair? First of all, animal agriculture is responsible for 7% of heat-trapping gas emissions. You might have heard a different number, but a brand new study just came out last week. So that's what I'm citing. It is directly okay. responsible for 7% of heat-trapping gas emissions. But then there's an additional amount of emissions, probably not quite double, but almost that, due to deforestation for agriculture and things like that. But here's the crazy thing. The majority of those emissions come from 20 companies. 20 wow. companies. Really? It's not the small shareholder in Africa. Grazing actually puts carbon back in the soil. And feeding animals a better diet cuts down on the methane emissions that they belch out. It's mm-hmm. 20 large industrial producers that are responsible for the majority of the problem. And so that is a place where using our voice and raising awareness, both inside and outside, can make a difference. So in companies, even some of those companies, there are people who want to do the right thing. They need to know that people support them and that they should do the right thing because it matters to their consumers. Each of us can speak not just with our voice, but with our wallet. So we can look at who those companies are, like Tyson's is one of them and Cargill's another, and there's a whole Uh list of them. We can say, okay, I'm not going to be buying from them. I'm going to be, and this is what I do personally, I only buy from a local farmer who practices grass-fed grazing. And of course, it's more expensive. So we don't eat meat hardly at all. But when we do, we get it locally. We, we can't keep on living with $1 burgers. There's just no way. We need to bring farmers on board. And it's not the small farmers who are the problem. It is the big conglomerates that also have huge ethical issues with, you know, the way they might treat animals and the way that they treat waste. And so there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that we can pick off. There's low-hanging fruit with the meat and dairy firms, there's low-hanging fruit with the fossil fuel companies. You know, 20 fossil fuel companies, the same number, are responsible for 35% of all carbon emissions since the 1960s. There's this list of banks, that 20 top banks that support the fossil fuel industry through trillions of dollars of loans. And when I found out that Chase, JP Morgan was number one, I cut up my two credit cards from them and I called them and I told them why I was doing that. And they said, well, all banks do that. And I said, not all banks do it, but you're the worst. And that's why I'm not banking with you anymore. <laughs> so they were trying so. to argue with you about why you ought to keep those credit cards. <laughs> they were, they were. You know, me doing that, I'm just one person. But me right. telling you and everybody yep. else saying, oh, yeah. she said that. Let me look up who those other banks are. Maybe I have a credit card with some of them. That right. is how we get the ball rolling down the hill. I'm so glad you talked about that because... It is enlightening to hear that there are kind of a finite number of companies. Yes, they are huge conglomerates. And yes, it is challenging to think that we could change the way they, you know, they run or they're managed, but it's not impossible. I mean, you look at the way water conservation has seeped into the culture of, I don't know, companies like General Mills and Walmart, big companies that probably 30 years ago might not have been moved on this. And I have to say that does give me hope. It is kind of cultural pressure on the uh, culture inside these companies. Completely. So who is inside these companies? People. People who are fundamentally good people who want to do the right thing. They just might not be aware of how they're contributing or they might not know what they can do. And so those people can make such a difference by saying, wow, I didn't know that we were one of these companies. Let's get off the list. This is bad for our reputation. It's bad for the bottom line. And it's bad for me and my children and your children and everybody else who lives on this planet. So what can we do about it? I'm interested if 
as you got deeper into turning away from astrophysics into, you know, a career and a, and a passion for climate science, whether there has been a writer who has been really influential in the way you see the world and the way you think. And in preparation for writing my own book, I am such an academic. I'm afraid to pick up a pen if I haven't read everything that anybody else has ever written. So I read, <laughs> and this is not an exaggeration because you know I err on the conservative side. I think I read 65 books um, cover, <laughs> wow. covering everything from moral philosophy to neuroscience before I wrote my own. Mm. Um, mm. And I really had to work hard to cut down on the quotes because I just wanted to stitch together all these amazing insights from all these incredible people. So I feel like the books where I gained the greatest insight from that I could apply to what I talk about myself about saving us is uh, a book called The Influential Mind by a neuroscientist named Tally Sherratt, who just explained the way our brains work. I just read that book going, oh, yes. Oh, that's why. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know that. The, the Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt explains how people make moral judgments and how often we judge each other to be morally, um, morally incorrect or morally insufficient and how that holds us back from coming together because we're always having these conversations with a side of judgment. That was a really good one too. And in my book, I have a whole chapter on guilt. And it's so important because I think that guilt is one of the biggest things holding all of us back. Even people who are dismissive, ultimately it's guilt that's at a lot of the bottom of it. And we employ guilt like a weapon against each other to try to make ourselves feel better for a nanosecond. We're putting somebody else down at our own expense. And the benefit for us might last a second, but the harm can last a lifetime. No wonder in this society that's all about judging each other and pointing fingers and canceling people and, you know, shaming people and guilting people. No wonder we can't come together. What if we started these conversations by saying, I really admire what you stand for. I admire how you care for your child. I admire that you seem like a good person. And then what if we connect to climate change to that person who they care about? We would get a very different reception than if we start by guilting and judging. Catherine Hayhoe is chief scientist for The Nature Conservancy, and her new book is titled Saving Us. Catherine, thank you. Thank you. Such a pleasure speaking with you. 